Welcome to Gospel Church Online. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to welcome you, uh, even, even if it's not in person. Uh, we, we make no false pretense about this. We long for the day here at Gospel Church when we will be able to actually be together. Uh, as many have pointed out in this time, the, the church is not a, a building. The church is a people, but the church is a people gathered. Uh, and so we long for the day when that can be our reality again. And it's seeming like it might come up for us sometime soon. So, so that's hopeful. Um, well, today we're, we're stepping back into the Gospel of Luke. We're in our series, Luke, the Limitless Gospel. Uh, it's a series as we look at the life of Jesus through the, the lens of Luke, where we see just the power of Jesus and the wonder of Jesus. And we see Jesus breaking through the limits in so many ways. Uh, so I'm just going to pray for us before we go into that, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into the Word. Jesus, please... Please speak to your people today by the power of the Spirit. Spirit, we ask that you would move today in our hearts. We believe in you. We believe that you are with us where we are right now and in our day-to-day lives. So we ask that you would move with transforming power. Change our hearts, Lord. Change our desires. Make us people who desire the kingdom, who desire the king, who desire the eternal joys of being with God. And Lord, work out the change in our lives that comes of those new desires, that new faith. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, like I said, we're in, we're in Luke today. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a quick question. And my question, quite simply, is has, any, has anyone ever responded to you in a way that made you step back? That maybe shocked you? That you couldn't explain? Have you ever been at odds with a person, uh, maybe, maybe even angrily at odds with a person, only to be surprised by the way that they then proceed? Let me give you an example. Uh, and I want to I tell a story. It's about an argument I once had. Um, in, in, in this story, uh, I come off all right in this story. And I want to be really, really clear before I say this. Um, you know, this could be one of those stories where the preacher glorifies himself. Uh, and I want to be so clear, for every argument that I've handled really, really well, uh, there would be several that I've handled very, very poorly. Um, even, even this example we're going to get into, there were some poor moments before we got to some good moments. Uh, and so I, I really want to say that, that any, any, any goodness here on display is by the grace of God, and I really do mean that. Uh, I think this was a moment of intervention of grace, not of, of my great instincts in an, in an argument. Um, but this one time, this one time, I was having an argument uh, with someone, with a friend, not, not a close friend. Uh, this was more than a decade ago now. And, and, and I have no memory exactly of what the argument was about. It, it wasn't Crystal, by the way, that I was, that I was arguing with. Uh, but I, I remember we, we'd been arguing for a while, and, and, and about, about who was right, you know, uh, about this thing that mattered to us both so much. And it mattered, must have mattered to us both quite a bit because we both got quite heated in this argument. We were both quite upset with each other, getting angry. And, and, and the one part of this that I remember clearly is that I had this moment of clarity and conviction. And, and I felt convicted of two things. First... 
that I was being ungracious and cruel towards this person. Uh, and second, and perhaps this was the more painful of the two, uh, was that for some time now I had been aware that I was wrong. And I had been pushing the argument out of the blatant desire to be right or to be shown to be right, to be justified, I suppose is how you put it, out of, out of a, a bloody-minded desire to be right, even though I knew I was wrong. Maybe that's familiar for some people. I don't know. Uh, but it, <laughs> this, this happened... What happened was bizarre. As I, as I reached this conviction, it happened right in the middle of, of a heated statement from me. And I suddenly, not even really thinking it through, certainly not changing my tone, which made it really odd, uh, suddenly changed what I was saying uh, halfway through. And, and I really believe this was only by the Spirit's grace, let me say again. But I changed completely what I was saying. I, it, would have, it would have been something along the lines of, Oh, really? Do you think so? Well, I'm sorry. I realise I was wrong and I, uh, I, I really need to backtrack a bit. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have kept going. I've been quite angry and it was my fault and I'm sorry about this. And it was an odd moment, to say the least. Uh, the person I was talking to actually just kind of went, and, and walked off. Um, but... But we came back and talked about it again later. And, and when we did, she said to me, you know, I, that she didn't, she didn't really know what to do with that. Uh, she, it, it took her off guard. Um, and I wonder if you've ever had that moment where someone responds, suddenly turns around, suddenly is able to say, well, I'm sorry, it was, it's my fault. Or, or, or is suddenly able to be gracious to you when you don't, maybe didn't even deserve grace. I mean, she probably deserves some grace from me there. So it's a limited example, but we'll go with it. Uh, today we're coming into, into Luke chapter 6. And in this chapter, Jesus is going to call us into living in a way that looks upside down, really. It looks upside down and, and is inexplicable to a watching world. Uh, it, it takes people off guard. Now, I need to say, we have... We have a huge amount that we want to get through today, uh, and we're not going to hit all of it. Some of you will be happy to hear that. Uh, but uh, there's there's just so much in this passage, and I really I really would urge you sit down, uh, have a read of it. If you've got if you've got one of the Luke Scripture journals that we've been using here at Gospel Church, sit down. It's on page forty six. Um, open that up now as well. But uh, have a have a read of this passage and really grapple with it this week. Um, we're going we're going. From Luke 6, verse 12, and, and I would encourage you to sit down and really plough your way through the whole Sermon on the Plain. Uh, that's Luke 6, 12 through to the end of chapter 6. Because it, really, it really is a rich text. And that's, that's my usual encouragement to everyone here at Gospel Church. Sit down, grapple with the text of the Bible for yourself. There's good reason why I encourage you to do that. It's, it's profitable. These are words from God breathed out to us. Get your head around that. Uh, they are, they're profitable, they're helpful, they carry saving and transforming and glorifying power in the life of everyone who believes them. Uh, so, so don't be content to just read, uh, you know, read a little or just hear it explained by someone else, even by me. Uh, dig into God's precious words for yourself, please. 
But going beyond the general encouragement, if I may, uh, there's a special motivation for us as we come to this, to read this particular piece of the Bible and really come to terms with what it is saying. There is a specific relevance for us, I suppose you would say. You see, as we've travelled through the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, we've again and again run into his identity and his authority, the authority of Jesus and the identity of Jesus. And, and, And that again and again has hit us with the question, who is this man? I hope that's familiar to those who listen regularly by now. And we've again and again done that, we've collided with his authority, and, and, and it's been authority again and again to, to heal, to reach the unreachable, to forgive the unforgivable, and so on. And, and we've had clear but indirect statements of who Jesus is so far. And it all reaches a bit of a climax today, in this passage. Uh, so, so as, as we begin today, we see... Um, a bit of the extent of, of not just who Jesus is, but what it is that this man came to do. To remind you, Jesus has found himself at odds a few times now with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, with the scribes. And, and a lot of that disagreement roots in this fact that they came to him expecting a new rabbi, you know, an, another teacher in a long line of teachers who would teach similar things, maybe have some innovative ideas, but really add on to what had come before. But when they find Jesus, in Jesus they find something different altogether. They find one who has authority and who brings drastic change. And not only that, they find someone who is doing something new. And that's key to understanding what happens in this passage today. Remember, remember back in chapter 5, this is not very long ago, right at the end of chapter 5 actually, the Pharisees were disgruntled with Jesus. Uh, They were upset with him and they said that he brought, uh, the reason why they were upset, I don't know, his response to their upsetness was that he said that he brought a new wine that would not go in the old wineskins. He said he brought a new cloth that would not attach to the old. And what he meant by that we saw from that was that what Jesus brought was bigger than the old. What Jesus brought was incompatible with the old way. Jesus comes with a new covenant. He comes to draw people everywhere into a new relationship with God. Grounded, in fact, in himself. But really, he was indirect there. It was a parable. Uh, But today, the indirectness becomes actually quite explicit. It becomes quite direct as Jesus sets about forming a new community. And what we're going to see is that Jesus sets about establishing what everyone else would see as an upside-down kingdom. The the opposite opposite of all that would have been expected of the messianic kingdom is what Jesus has come to establish. But what this means is that the Sermon on the Plain, which is what we're coming into, the Sermon on the Plain, along with a great deal of Jesus' teaching, is intended for the new people of God, for the new community of God. And whilst he is 
gathering them already here, really, really this teaching looks forward to being applied in the church. This is teaching directed at the spirit-filled people of God who are able to live in it thanks to the cross of Jesus. And so this is forward-looking teaching for the community. This is teaching that the disciples, after Jesus was raised, would draw on and live by in new ways. So come with me now. We're going to to read this now. We're in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. We're going to pause there. Now, this might not seem that huge of a moment to us. Uh, If you were reading this, especially if you were passingly familiar with Jesus uh, and his 12 disciples, you might just move quickly past this part uh, in your Bible reading. But, But in a way that reaches actually way, 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 way back into the Old Testament and will have ramifications for the remainder of not just the Bible, but history and on into eternity, what Jesus does here is significant. He calls 12 apostles. Now, apostle means sent one. Uh, and, and as we know, 11 of these would become uh, the key leaders of the early church. And in fact, uh, and, and then the one who betrayed Jesus, sorry, Judas, would, would be replaced. And there would be 12 of these key leaders of the early church. Uh, and, and their names would be inscribed one day on the walls of the New Jerusalem in all of eternity, the Bible tells us in Revelation. So this is a, this is a significant moment. But not just for that. Not just for that. Uh, we, we should know that this is a big moment, actually, because before doing this, Jesus goes up on the mountain and all night he prays. In, in the open exposed on the mountain Jesus prays from dusk till dawn because the decision he's about to make is that significant and and a little side note which we will major on in a later message here uh, in Luke uh, prayer is so central to the ministry of Jesus isn't it it's so powerful in the ministry of Jesus Jesus prays a lot In this gospel, we see him praying all the time. And every time we see Jesus praying in this gospel, happens a lot, big things happen. So so we we should take that cue uh, as his people that prayer is central. Prayer is important. 
If we wish to see the kingdom of God growing and being displayed here, we must be a people of prayer. But, but then here's the, perhaps the big question in this first section of our text. And, and, and do you know what it is? Can you guess what it is? What's the big question about the calling of the twelve? Well, why twelve? You know, um, why not eight apostles? I like the number eight. That was one of my favourite numbers. Why not, why not three apostles? Right? Jesus, Jesus will see him spending a lot of time later in this gospel pouring into three of the, the apostles, uh, Peter, James and John. Why twelve? Why not 50 apostles? You know, imagine if there were 50 or 100 or 500 apostles. How great that would have been. The things that could have been got done, right? Imagine how, how productive they might have been. Or, you know, if you've ever you know, been on a team with 500 people, maybe unproductive. I don't know. But, um, but, but he calls 12, right? And there's a reason why he calls 12. That number should catch our attention. Because Israel, uh, the covenant community of God in the Old Testament, Israel has 12 tribes. Each descending from those 12 sons of Jacob. Way back in the book of Genesis. And when Jesus calls 12 apostles, he chooses that number because he's calling a new Israel. Twelve is such a significant number. It's like he's saying, this is the foundation of the new covenant community. Now it's funny, there's another line here. Jesus goes up a mountain and then he comes down and delivers the new covenant way to the people. It's almost like Moses going up the mountain to God and then coming down and delivering the law to the people. But this is the new covenant and the new way to live. So this is the new Israel. And having called these 12, having established the new community, and, and really it's not the new community. This is, the, this is kind of the proto-new community, the, the pre-new community. Because it would, it would later be properly established as the covenant community, as a covenant in the blood of Jesus. But having called them, he comes down and he begins to teach and what we find in this, one of the longest stretches of Jesus' teaching in Luke's Gospel, is the teaching of what the new community is to be like. And to the ears of the world, it's the teaching of an upside-down kingdom, like we've said. It shouldn't surprise us after the last few chapters of Jesus' ministry, but he turns everything on its head. He teaches upside-down joy and upside-down desires, and flowing from those joys and desires, he teaches upside-down living, upside-down actions. And those are, those are the two things that we're going to uh, focus on, that we're going to expand on, that we need to understand from this passage. Uh, and, and they will continue to flow into next week's message as we continue to go through the Sermon on the Plain. But we must understand that Jesus doesn't just come with a law to be obeyed. He comes with new desires that produce new actions. So we're going to look at those desires and actions. The desires of the heart which precede the actions of the hands. So come on, let's dig into this now. We're actually stepping into the words of the Sermon on the Mount. 
So he opens with, with the four blessings uh, that Mark read out for us to, before, and the four woes as well. Uh, and these eight, they set the tone for how controversial this sermon that Jesus is delivering is going to be. Did you, did you catch this when Mark read it before? This is an upside-down set of blessings and woes, if ever there was one. Contrary to everything you will be told in this world is what you find in this list. This is not typically how we think about blessings, is it? Is it you, how you think about blessings? Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you. That's the blessing that Jesus is talking about. You know, think with me for a second. Just, just, just work with me here. Um, can you think of a context in which you uh, have talked about being blessed recently? Or well, even not recently, you know? Here are some common ones, right? Uh, we are so blessed to live in a free country, aren't we? We are so blessed to have, or I'm so blessed to have the house that I live in. God blessed us with a good year this year, didn't he? We didn't go hungry. Maybe that's not so relevant uh, for this year, by the way, as far as the viruses go. But, uh, you know, maybe we've talked about this in years past. He blessed us with a good year. We didn't go hungry. We, we had everything we needed and a great deal of the things we wanted. Does that language sound familiar to you? Does it sound like language that's come out of your mouth? And yet Jesus gives us four marks of the blessed. Poverty, hunger, weeping, and being despised. And not only that, he gives four marks of woe. Four characteristics of those who are to be pitied. Uh, wealth, fullness, laughter, and being spoken of well. What's going on here? And, and, and the way to understand what is going on here is first to see who Jesus is talking to. Um, it's really important. Luke tells us that before he began to speak, Jesus looked up at his disciples. He looks on his disciples. So he's speaking to his disciples. There's a great crowd, great crowd of people, but he's speaking to his disciples. And remember, the people who have been coming to Jesus... The people who've been becoming his disciples, you know, they're fishermen, they're sick, they're downtrodden, they're the poor. He has faced opposition from the religious establishment, from those well-to-do, and even followers like Levi, who would have been well enough off, he was a tax collector, he would have had the cash, they've left their wealth behind in order to follow Jesus. It's become of secondary importance to them. So Jesus looks at his poor, hungry, hated disciples and he says, you, you may not see it, but you are blessed. And the reason that they are blessed is quite simply what they have gained is much greater than what they have set aside or what they didn't have in the first place. What they have gained is so much greater than what they lack. 
This opening section of the sermon is there to orientate our definition of what is to be desired. What it is to be blessed. And Jesus is saying, go after the best. Go after that which is eternal. Even if you have to forsake that which is temporary, go after it. God's people are blessed now because they have gained the kingdom of God, even if in the process they become poor in the here and now. God's people are blessed now for all of eternity. They shall be satisfied in the presence of God, even if they're hungry now as a result. Because they will have joy and laughter forever, God's people are blessed, even if now they mourn as a result. And really, the the key line, the key line is, is right there in verse 23. When people hate you, when people call you evil because of Jesus, leap for joy, your reward is great in heaven. We are a people of eternal desires who for the sake of Jesus are willing to be poor, who are willing to leap or should be. And and our definition of blessing is orientated around that which is eternal, not that which is brief and fleeting. Not just that. It's not just that we love the eternal joys of God more than the temporary joys of now. But we are called as the people of God to be willing to give up the temporary joys in order to pursue the eternal joys. You see, this is, this is key to living as a Christian right here and right now in our day-to-day lives. There's a, there's a fellow who was named Jim Elliott uh, who, who lost his life to bring the gospel to unreached people. He died because his definition of blessing was eternal, so he was willing to lose his life. He knew the risks going in. And he said, he wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's what we get here. As Christians, we're called to be willing, ready, to show our desire for the eternal in our willingness to suffer the loss of the temporary. As Christians, this should rightly orient, reorient how we talk about blessings, I think. And, and that's what Jesus sets about now. It's not, not just even how we talk about it, but how we approach this issue, how we, how we live. And that's what Jesus sets about now. He takes this principle of desiring the eternal and therefore losing the temporary. And, and in verses 27 to 39... The rest of our passage today, he puts legs on it, really. Uh, he, he gives it life. And, and, and when we read it, we see the dynamic of, of temporary loss this, in this section coming up, 27 to 39. We see that dynamic of temporary loss for the sake of eternal gain playing out again and again and again. Uh, it just keeps playing out. There's a mix of it in the whole way through these kind of uh, 12 verses. Like Jesus just saying in different ways, in different applications, lose so that you can gain. Lose so that you can gain. Lose so that you can gain. But in verses uh, 27 to 31 and 37 to 39, those two sandwich bread parts, Jesus leans more heavily on these 
practical instructions on, on loving our enemies, which we'll look at closely in a moment. And then in the verses in between, in verses 32 to 36, he leans into the desires that, that lead us to live this way. Look at this language here with me. We're in 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? If you do good only when it will result in good for you, well, that doesn't reflect eternal benefits, does it? Eternal desires. That reflects a desire for what you can get here and now. And Jesus implies that that, realistically seen, is, is worthless to get what you can get here and now. Yeah, let that reorient us. Our calling is not just to do good to others when convenient or when beneficial for us in the here and now. Not just to do good if it can be posted on social media or if it can be uh, talked about well or if it can be praised. Not just to do good to a person who will one day be able to do good back to us. There is a benefit, a credit that we look for forward to when we practically and powerfully love our enemies now we are to love enemies do good I'm jumping the gun a bit on what we're going to talk about in a sec but love enemies do good lend expecting nothing in return why because our reward Jesus says will be great in heaven and we will be sons of God that's what we look forward to. And that's what we rest in now. We don't live self-sacrificially simply because that is the upstanding way to live. Uh, because that reflects good Christian morals. No, we do it for a benefit, for a credit. We do it because we look forward to something greater that lays at the end of this life of giving ourselves away. The eternal joy of being with God, of being his child, is worth losing everything else for. It's when we reach this point that we begin to see that, that upside down really is actually the wrong way to talk about what Jesus is doing here, the wrong way of looking at this. His teaching is upside down from the world's angle. But you see, Jesus hasn't come to a right way up world and set about turning it upside down. Jesus comes to a world that is worse than upside down and he sets it right. He comes to a world that is broken and he mends it. He comes to a world, to a people who are living in a, in a contrary way. Who are living in a way that careers toward destruction by despising their creator and despising each other. And he gently, he tenderly, and he softly and self-sacrificially turns us around. He comes to those dead in sin and he leads us into life with God forever. 
And that's an invitation, by the way. If you don't know the life that is in Jesus, please talk to us. Please get in touch with us. Follow up on that contact through the website. Or if you have my number, uh, call it. Or if you don't have my number, get in touch through the website. We would love to talk to you about Jesus. This is what we love to speak to people about. Because there is joy in him for you. But having, having looked at that, look with me now at these practical ways, the practical words of Jesus here. And as we look, let's ask ourselves the hard question. Is my life being described in these words? I think we're all going to run into moments where we'll say, no, this calls me to change based on a better desire. Is this calling me to be different? Now Jesus says to you and to me, this is what it looks like to live with eternal gain in sight. This is what it looks like to live as a Christian. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. How often and how easily do we let hatred, opposition, creep into our hearts? When opposed by someone, when someone works against us, uh, whether that be for the sake of the faith or whether that just be generally, uh, the world says that we should, we should work against them, right? How often do we listen to that rubbish? Sorry, but that's what it is. Christians, our Saviour won't stand for it. He calls you, uh, he calls you, you know, that snide person that you don't like, that bothersome person who is in your face and in your life and you don't want them in your life. That scary person who clearly dislikes you, he calls you, they are to be the object of your love. Look out for them. Not in a despising way, in the way that you do for your loved ones. Be the first person, set it as a goal to be the first person to care for that person when they need it. And not only that, but he goes on and he says, when you are actively being opposed, that is your chance. This is your moment, Christians, to display the way of the kingdom of God. This is your chance to show love. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. He doesn't mean just pray for them to change so that it won't be so bad for you. Though, of course, you can do that. He means, he means pray for their good. Pray with their good at heart. Pray that God would be kind to them, that he would save them, that they would have eternal joy. Have their best interests as your interests. Like you, you do a loved one, right? Like you do a son or a daughter or a dear friend. Because that is what they are to be. They are to be a loved one. One that you love. Jesus goes on. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away the cloak, your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. 
you know, let me ask you, when hated, is our response generosity? To seek a way to bless that person who is hating us, who is acting against us. Jesus goes on, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Is this the kind of generosity that your eternity with God leads you to live in? (coughs) Giving generously to all. Even if they're taking from you. It is so hard for us, especially if our eyes are on the here and now, to be generous to someone who is taking. And it's so much easier when our eyes are on the great gain that we have. And this is what we have to do, even if every principle of the world tells us that they are taking away so we should take from them, we give. We're called to generosity. Jesus says it in no unclear terms. He goes on, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There's the general principle, right? The joys of eternity lead us to act, not out of what others have done to us, but but we act towards what we wish they would do to us. We do for them what we wish they would do to us, regardless of what they are doing. So that hatred is met with love, violence is met with blessing, and theft is met with generosity. And that then flows into what he says in, uh, in verses 37 and 38 and 39. You know, we are living with the desire for the good that is to come. Uh, and we... We live as people who have experienced forgiveness, who who are released from judgment and so who do not judge. Now this doesn't mean that we don't call people out of sin. It means that we don't, we are not the judges. We're not to condemn them. We are to implore them to come out in repentance. And we are to forgive. Don't we see that in this passage? That if you are struck on the one cheek, offer the other. Show that you don't hold this against the person. Show that you don't condemn them. Show that you don't. Show that you do forgive them. Because you are being forgiven. You will be forgiven. How you live reveals who you are and the desire that you have. <coughs> I want to close today. By sitting before you two reasons why we live with these eternal desires at heart. Why we now live to love our enemies and bless those who oppose us. And and that might sound a bit strange to you. You might have been thinking to yourself, well, the eternal desires are the why, right? The why we would do it. And and to some extent that's true. Uh, But there's there's more here. Jesus said, and we skipped over this, in, in verse 35... That if you live in this way, you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. See, if you live in this way, you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. 
Now, now he isn't saying that this makes you children of God. That's important. He's saying that you will reflect who you are. But here's what's central. How we're called to live in this whole thing, this whole thing of giving ourselves for others, the action here, is how God has been towards us. When Jesus said God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, he isn't just thinking of that ungrateful, evil person in your life that you don't like, that God calls you to be kind to. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We were the ungrateful, evil. The Apostle Paul writes over in Romans 5, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Feel the weight of that. We were the ungrateful. We were the enemies. We were the, th- the thief of what belonged to God. We were those who hated him and persecuted him and spoke ill of him. And yet when we hated him the most, he loved us the most clearly. Jesus responded to our hate by coming and dying for us. The Father responded to our hatred by sending his only Son into the world to die for us. When people howled for the blood of Jesus, he bled for theirs. And for ours. For forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's, that's, we're called to live like that because that's how Jesus lived towards us. To give for the good of others because Jesus has given for our good. My second reason to live this way is that because this is the way God has been... Uh, sorry, uh, My second reason to live this way is because this is the way that God has been toward us, living in this way is the controversial, countercultural, inexplicable, apart from Jesus, way of living that shows the character of God to the world. It declares the gospel of his saving love to a hating world or to an apathetic world. Uh, We are to live in a way that Jesus is the only explanation for. And this is it. When you give, when the world would say take, it states that you have received more. And it begs the question, what have they got? When we love in the face of hate and bless in the face of opposition, it begs the question, 
What power enables them to do that? And the answer is solely the grace of God in Jesus. There is no power able to do this other than that. This is what reveals to the world that this isn't just a religion. This is a people who have been changed by loving grace. That makes real, practical, life-transforming change in our lives. Would you pray about this now with me? Jesus, Jesus our Lord, Lead us to be a people who have the desires of eternity and who look to our great example, our great saviour, who though he was rich became poor so that we might become rich through his poverty. Lord, let us be a people who are willing to give, who are willing to lose, who are willing to sacrifice so that others can know you, so that others might become rich. Lord, help us to be willing to lose all for the sake of your kingdom. Let us be willing to give up what we cannot keep for that which we cannot lose. For the eternal kingdom, for joy with our creator forever. Lord, I ask that you would work in the hearts of the people here who are listening to this message. I ask that you would work in their hearts and my heart that we would be challenged, that we would be called to be transformed by the grace of God. That you would more firmly give us the desires for that which is eternal and that you would cause to change in how we treat that which is temporary. I pray for how we use our money. I pray for how we use our time. I pray for how we use our resources, Lord. I pray for how we use our hearts and minds that you would lead us to be a people who are giving of ourselves. Even to those who oppose, even to those who hate, and to anyone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.